Welcome to episode 42 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, focused on well-being and sustainability in real estate and interiors. I'm your host, Matt Morley, a well-being champion and founder of Biophilico Healthy Buildings. This week, we're in New York talking to Jansara Ruth, co-founder and design director of the Healthy Materials Lab and an associate professor at the Parsons School of Design. John Sarah received a Master's of Architecture from Cranbrook Academy of Art and a BFA in Industrial Design from Rhode Island School of Design. She also has her own Healthy Materials Design Collective called Salty Labs. The Healthy Materials Lab, meanwhile, is all about placing health at the center of real estate architecture and interiors. They aim to raise awareness around toxics in building products and create educational online resources for designers and architects that further that same cause. I recently completed their four-part online certification program to become a healthy materials advocate, and I honestly can't recommend the course enough. Whether you work in this industry or you're just simply curious to understand more about buildings and the materials that go into them, both the good and the bad, it's far easier not to look under the hood, right? To just trust that developers, architects, and contractors all have our best interests at heart. Well, I hate to burst the bubble, but that just ain't so. Nowhere is this more acute than in our homes, our offices, and, as John Sara explains, the worst offender of all, the affordable housing sector. She speaks with the precision of a well-proven professor and the conviction of someone with a very clear mission in life. So listen up, people. This is a good one. If you enjoyed the episode, please hit like or subscribe for next week's release. Here's John Sara Ruth. Well, listen, thanks so much for, for joining us on the show today. Could we start with a quick description of the Healthy Materials Lab at Parsons and what its main objectives are? Yeah, sure. It's great to be here, Matt. Um, thanks for inviting us here. And I'm happy to represent our, our fantastic team of collaborators at the Healthy Materials Lab at Parsons. You know, our central objective really is to remove harmful chemicals from the built environment that are prohibiting people from living healthy lives. That's the big, big picture. Um, you know, we um, believe that if we can, we as designers and architects and building professionals, if we can put people in the center of our minds when we, when we make every design decision, people and environmental health at the center then that changes the way we think about design and it also puts people's health and environmental health at the forefront. So, um, which, you know, that means that it changes the way we think about building products in the environment and changes the way we think about um, the whole process of designing. Our specific focus is on affordable housing and people living in affordable housing. So that's where, that's kind of our objective. Um, you know, and the way that we do that is that we provide education to designers and to architects and building professionals and faculty who are teaching the next generation of designers and architects so that they can understand how, um, how to design healthier buildings and homes. So we do that with courses. We've de we develop courses, short courses, and also programs that, um, that allow professionals to use these programs as their, continu edu their continuing education credits so that they can build this right into their practice. Um, so we have two robust online programs. One is specifically about affordable housing, and the other one is more generally for anyone who is interested in the built environment and making it healthy. Um, 
We also provide resources and tools and examples for designers and architects to make to make it simpler to build healthier. And it, you know, I think you and I are talking a little earlier just about how complicated it can be. And so a lot of the work that we're doing is to translate information um, from, from examples, but also from other disciplines, disciplines other than design, um, into actionable knowledge within the building industry. So that's, um, you know, there's a lot of work being done about the toxics included in building products. And a lot of that work is happening in science or in public health or in material research or in um, environmental justice advocacy. And so we try to, we are constantly culling from all of these different perspectives and interpreting that to be useful knowledge for people who are designers and architects and then putting it into um, hopefully into really easily accessible devices through our website and through live events and through recorded um, education programs to make it just accessible for anybody. You know, our goal is to really make, make radical change in the building industry so that everyone can live healthier lives. It really can be like opening Pandora's box. Once one starts to get into this, there's so much to understand and so much to look into. Having resources of expertise becomes fundamental. You know, it's, there's just, we need access to the right information and, and getting to the best possible answer as quickly as possible. And it can be, it can be overwhelming. But if we take a step back, just for perhaps those who are less aware of the risks and dangers of toxic chemicals in our built environment, in the buildings around us. What are the main sources of those chemicals? How are they released into the air? And what are the risks at stake in these unhealthy buildings and interiors? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the sources can be anything in the built in. I mean, the built environment, you know, basically our world is made up of materials. We live in a physical world that is made up of materials. And um, the way we sometimes think about it is, I don't know, I like to think about it historically. Like, you know, if we look thousands of years ago, people were building about building shelter out of what was right around them, you know, trees or clay or stone or um, water, you know, and mixing mixing in a plant life. And they were mixing these things together to make shelter in the industrial revolution. When, when there's this huge surge in um, man-made synthetic uh, products that are, that are primarily based in the fossil fuel industry. um, There was all this kind of discovery about how to take, how to make synthetic products act a little bit more like natural products and, do it quickly and do it without um, without much regulation. And so what it turns out is that the building products that we primarily build with now, we meaning globally, um, contain chemicals that are often very toxic to human bodies. And they can be found in almost every building product in, in a conventionally built building. Um, and th- that can range from, you know, flooring materials to wall wall materials, insulation, even to the paint that's just around us on the interior. You know, we, we look at like an interior, I don't know, I'm sitting in a space right now and the walls, the ceilings, all four walls and the ceilings, so that's five surfaces of the room are painted 
with with what we call a latex paint, but it's not latex at all. It's really a synthetic, it's acrylic, which is, um, you know, plastic. And so we often think about it like we're living almost in a plastic bag. And um, so, you know, that's just an example to use paint, but almost every single material that's used in the built environment is um, is a product. And that product is a list, you know, if you look at the product's ingredients, like you might look at the list of ingredients in a package of food, you know, a food product, you'll see a long list of ingredients. And a lot of those ingredients are chemicals that have been traced. And now, you know, there's been research in the last 25 years to look at those ingredients that are in building products and, and um, identify their, the link to human disease. And it turns out that a lot of these chemicals are linked to challenging human diseases as common as asthma or diabetes, even obesity, or even nerve disorders like the, you know, the nervous system, uh, like autism or um, uh, different kinds of attention disorder in children are linked to some of these, these chemicals. And then of course there's carcinogens and hormone disruptors. So you know, there's a long list of effects that these chemicals that are found in building products can have on human bodies. And, you know, the especially vulnerable are children because their organs are growing. And if they're exposed to these chemicals while their organs are developing, then their whole bodily system is affected. Or older people who are have immune compromised systems are, are overly affected. Or pregnant women are, um, you know, gestating fetuses who, who could be affected. So the, um, the effects are long, you know, are, are has a, there's a long list of people who are more affected. Um, and then I think you ask like, how does that, how do these chemicals get released into the atmosphere? They can be released through different things. Like, you know, the, they can be released through VOCs, volatile organic compounds, or SVOCs, which are ga gaseous. So they can be emitted, they're invisible, gases that release into the indoor environments, and then we breathe them in. Um, and that's probably one of the most common ways that we um, can be affected, our bodies can be affected through, for, through inhalation. But they can also, um, you know, materials decompose over time, and those those as they decompose, they have like microscopic particles that uh, that move into the air and and cling on to dust. And that dust can also be inhaled, or it actually can even be ingested if we're eating. You know, our mouths are open. We're eating something. We're sitting on a sofa. There's a little bit of dust on the sofa that gets onto our pizza. We put the pizza in our mouth. Or um, some some kinds of chemicals actually can be absorbed through the skin. So bisphenol A, for example, um, has been found on, this is, I, I, I'm not, I think this is, might be true in Europe as well, although I'm not sure, but in America on cash register receipts, there's bisphenol A. Oh. And, um, you know, if, if the people in the grocery store are, are more vulnerable than all of us because they touch them every minute, but if we touch that cash register receipt, we can absorb that bisphenol A through our skin which then acts as a, an endocrine receptor, you know, a, a hormone disruptor in our body. So I don't know, this is, this all sounds like a horror movie, but, um, you know, it's a, a lot of this is invisible and, um, 
and that's why it's really important for us to know more and and especially as designers and architects to know enough to not include um these chemicals and these these materials that contain these chemicals in the buildings that we're designing so this is where we start to build up the argument for for how one can can improve and and do better than has been done in the past and and then you get into the the healthy buildings argument but we have i think to define one piece that you mentioned around people and environmental health or, or how our health as humans and the health of the environment and the planet around us. Where do you or can one draw a line between the two? Is there in fact no clear distinction between them? How do you think about that that relationship between people and planet as it relates to healthy materials? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Matt, I think it's it's all related. It's um, impossible to separate because, um, you know, the way we think about this is through the full life cycle of a material. So if we're thinking about, well, let's think about the, you know, what we've been focused on lately is, um, and kind of, I'm kind of obsessed with this material because it's one of the fastest growing building materials in the United States is luxury vinyl tile, LVT. Um, and it's, so if we look at LVT from the, the very, you know, origins of that material, I mean, it's a, it's a product. And by, by a product, I mean, it's made up of many different materials, different from wood, for instance, which is, you know, if you have a piece of timber, that's from a tree, it's very clear that that's wood. But if you have LVT, it's made up of many different materials. And in, there's some great research which traced all of the different materials, which are really polyvinyl chloride. So we're looking at chloride and we're looking at vinyl and where all those things come from and tracing them back to their origins. Um, we find that just in the mining of chloride and in the manufacturing of vinyl, there are environmental um, impacts that are extremely harmful to the environment, but also extremely harmful to anyone living near those facilities. So if we think about where plastics are, are ref, where petroleum, let's say like fossil fuels are refined, there are communities who unfortunately have not much choice about where they live and their housing is located right next to these refineries. And so those people are exposed to the plastics refinery on a daily basis, 24 hours a day. So there's just, there's a one example where there's a link between the environmental pollution, which is obviously polluting the environment, polluting the land and soil and water systems. It's also emitting huge amounts of carbon dioxide into the air, which we know is um, a, a major emitter of greenhouse gases, which then go on to cause climate change. And we are suffering the effects of that right now. And then there's the people who are living right there next to that factory who are affected by that same air pollution. And then if that LVT makes it into their homes, then they're affected by these, the chemicals that make LVT pliable, soft, or the, the phthalates and other kinds of chemical classes that are in plastics, and now they're in their homes. So you see how, like, if we think through that process, just, you know, and it's really just following our imagination, like, how is something made? Where is it made? What does it affect? 
you can see how climate change, environmental health, and people's health are completely interrelated. There's no way to separate them. So, um, it's, um, you know, there's this great report that just came out in October called plastics. I think it's called the new coal. Um, yeah, it's called plastics are the new coal and it's put out by an organization called beyond plastics. But the summary of their findings show that plastics production might be even more negatively negative, more negative impact on the climate than even burning of coal. And the plastics production is a lot about building materials. It's a lot about making the, the places that we live. So, um, which then go on to negatively affect our human health. Like we talked about before, they can be, they can disrupt our hormone systems as well as disrupt the climate, the atmosphere. So yeah, that's maybe a long-winded way to say environmental health, people's health, climate health is all completely, you know, woven together. It's a false di dichotomy. In other words, we're, we're sort of using this people and planet as if they were somehow two separate concepts. But in fact, if you just accept that we're all part of nature, then you know, I often think of, of biophilia and nature in a way as being the, the bridge between those two, between people and planet. Once you accept that, as you sort of see the bigger picture of us all really just being part of a natural world, then there is no distinction between one and the other. So if we then look at how the practical realities of, of integrating some of these concerns into the design process, when we're talking about real estate developers, architects, and designers who are then giving health, both human and environmental, a seat at the table. So that, that but then becomes part of the design process of building or refurbishing. In terms of how that that pans out, like how is that getting done? Like what is it? Is it having a consultant on the team? Is it about architects retraining or, or sort of re-educating themselves? Like how are you seeing that playing out in, mm -hmm. in sort of the day-to-day -day terms? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think it's all of those things. You know, um, I think about it, it is a lot about architects and designers getting more knowledge than was than was typically taught in schools up till a couple of years ago. Um, I think that you know what we're doing at Parsons is to develop curriculum and um, and courses to um, help educate architects and designers and the next generation of architects and designers to um, understand their choices much better. So that's beginning. But in terms of professionals who are building buildings now, there's more education necessary and it takes time. And so, you know, you know, we're, we're involved in that effort to educate professionals to know better, but we also know that the, the process of building a building and the, the, um, day-to-day -day demands upon an architect or a designer are so extreme that often consultants are needed because this takes time. You know, it takes time to under, to examine our choices more carefully. And that's what's necessary. We need to, you know, I think a lot of buildings are built and then the next building comes across the table and you say, well, it worked well in that last building. So let's just use it again. And so there's not a lot of examination of our choices. But if we think about using healthier building products and making healthier buildings, we actually do have to examine our past experience and our, our past choices. And we need to examine it pretty closely. And so that, that is where 
Um, I think consultants come in. I think we're also seeing that larger architecture and design firms are beginning to hire in um, in-house experts in material health. A lot of our students, our graduate students, and our um, researchers who've worked with us at the lab then move on to work in architecture and design firms, and they become the resident expert. And uh, and that's necessary because the research of building materials is is not so straightforward. It's it's not. Um, it takes time. It takes time, and you know, of course, there are credentials to achieve. You know, you there are. Bream in the, in Europe, there's LEED, there's WELL, there's all these different um, certifying bodies which help help people navigate the system. But some of those criteria, I would say, maybe are not aggressive enough. And so it's really important for folks to have knowledge, not just follow guidelines. And um, and so you know, I think I th- I'm not saying that that's not useful, you know, a bunch of our colleagues have even changed in the U.S. what's called the Enterprise Green Communities Criteria, which is a very aggressive criteria for building affordable housing to be healthier and less impact, less negatively impactful on, on the environment. And so there's some great, great headway that's happening, but there is deep knowledge necessary for designers and architects and for consultants. I think that's one of the things I took from, from the four-part online certification course of yours was that you didn't shy away from just showing how complex and thorny this whole process is and, and sort of really exposing that and being completely transparent about it rather than trying to sort of write the textbook and say, well, look, just read this and everything will be okay, which is mm-hmm. arguably what happens a little bit with some of these courses around um, green and healthy building certifications that I've been sort of quietly collecting over the last few years. And to be honest, with your course, it was the first time where I felt there was a much more human approach that was much more grounded in the realities of this, which is it's complex stuff. It's hard. It's not easy. So with that course then, what's who's your main audience? Who are you, who are you focusing on with the, the four-part online certificate course? And then we can loop around onto the affordable housing one, which I think is a really interesting separate topic. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's really directed, well, primarily directed at designers and architects, and but also at anyone in the building industry, because we know that contractors, for instance, and developers and owners of buildings, even maintenance workers, have a huge impact on the way that building is built and the way that building is maintained. And um, so anyone involved in making choices for the building products or materials used in buildings um, are the the potential students of this course, um, and you know that's the the big objective is to, is just like you said to, for people to understand that it's not straightforward, that it takes real thought to, and you know we have to weigh our choices, we have to make compromises always, and make priorities about buildings, and so um, what we're trying to do is educate a way of thinking. We call it material health thinking. Um, you know, I think we uh, architects and design professionals have been taking our course and it's, it's been fabulous. We're seeing at least locally in, in the U S that we were watching practices actually shift to healthier ways of building, which is phenomenal. Um, what our next frontier is really to, to educate, to provide education that's appealing to contractors 
Um, because at the contractor level, that's where a lot of substitutions happen. You know, the architect and designer can write in a specification for a healthier building product, but then there might not be the money. And then the owner might say, well, we, you know, we can't spend that much. And then the contractor will say, well, we'll just substitute it for this. And all of a sudden you've lost your healthier building, or at least you've lost strides on that. So, um, that's our next frontier is to really, um, to, to recruit more, more contractors and more maintenance folks in buildings to take these courses and even developers to take the courses. Um, yeah. It's a real lesson that one. I mean, it's can't, I can't tell you how many, how many times it's happened to me, not just necessarily around the health credentials of a material, but just not quite maintaining that final 10 to 20% control of exactly what goes in. And then it's too late by the time you realize that something's been, been switched in. You're like, wow, how did that get there? And you just, it's, um, it's a real challenge. So I think that's very interesting that you're focusing on that. Let's talk about affordable housing because you've mentioned it. And obviously there's the course related to it. And just to give us a context there, what is it about affordable housing that makes it such an acute problem in terms of, of the health or, or negative poor health credentials of, of these buildings? Like what are the main hazards you're finding there? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, one of maybe the most obvious um, reasons is because affordable housing is generally built with cheap materials. And those cheap materials are generally the, the most unhealthy. Most of the cheap materials that are available today are synthetics, are based in plastics, based in this like refinement of fossil fuels, which then are made into, you know, particulate, you know, par you know, particle materials that are then made into the building products. And those are the ones, you know, if you can find something that's a dollar a square foot, well, let's use it for the poor people in affordable housing. And that's the thinking process. And we are trying to change that and to say, actually, um, we need to use healthier materials for people who um, don't have a choice about where they live because, well, like I said earlier, often these are folks who are doubly or triply exposed. You know, their, their, their homes might be located near factories or near toxic waste dumps or in, or near highways where there's just a lot of exterior pollution. And, um, and then they go inside and their, their flooring is polluting their house too. And so is their cabinetry. And so are their, the walls of their their home are polluting the indoors, so they're they're being polluted in in their external life and in their interior spaces. And then often, also people who are living in affordable housing are working in factories and they're working in on construction sites and they're working in places where they're exposed all day long to harmful chemicals. And then some of those chemicals are on their their clothing, and then they bring that clothing home, and then the children in that household are exposed doubly or triply. So th that's the reason we focus because we focus on affordable housing because people who are living in affordable housing are have all kinds of more risks and hazards of being exposed to harmful chemicals than than others. So um it's really important that at least we build homes for low-income people that are are um healthier. You know, let's start there. And you know Try to give everyone a chance to live a, a thriving, healthy life. You know, I think there's so many examples of high, high incidences of asthma and diabetes 
And um, until recently, we attributed that to, you know, exterior air pollution or to diet or to different, you know, or we even think of obesity, we attribute it to poor eating habits. But increasingly, what we're finding is that the chemicals that are used in building products might affect these diseases even more. And there is, you know, people who live in rental housing have no control over those building materials. So that's why we, we focus specifically on affordable housing. And the more the contractors and the architects and the designers understand this, I think they're, it's, it's a compelling argument to change. It was a real eye-opener for me. I think, you know, I, I'll be very honest, I think probably being guilty of falling into what is, in retrospect, a fairly sort of you know, white, middle-class, privileged perspective on, on what I do, which is, you know, trying to help in my own way to create healthier interiors. And, and it's far easier to have those conversations on, you know, premium new build or high-end refurbishment projects in center of London with big pension funds behind us and plenty of cash. And, you know, there's still topics of discussion and debate around budgets and, and how we manage things, but the numbers are on a completely different scale. And, you know, that piece of the course of your course really brought it home to me. And it was kind of a, a light bulb moment. I just thought, oh gosh, wow, there's this whole other side to this debate, which is, okay, how do you make that happen when there aren't these big budgets available? And, and how does one make progress and improve on that situation when you know the money is so tight? And surely that must be the, the biggest challenge then if you're advocating for healthier materials but still within that affordable housing sector so like how do you how do you crack that like what what are the is there necessarily a price differential are there options available if one has the knowledge to improve things or is there always an impact on the bottom line mhm that's a really great question and that's where we dig into the details i mean that's where we really have to dig into the strategy for building a building and the financing for building a building um, and there are strategies and there's some proven strategies that have worked really well, which is, um, well, some is redirecting funds to materials, you know, adding a little bit of material and uh, adding a little bit of budget to material cost. And what we're finding is that actually material costs is less of an issue than labor costs anyway, and other, other kinds of costs to doing building, but it's, it's the easiest one to value engineer out, which is why it's always the first to go. But if this knowledge is brought to the table, then there are other ways to think about those budgets. So it really becomes more of an economic, you know, issue and an issue with folks in the in the you know the white collar folks in the offices like rethinking how they're they're um, aligning their budgets. So that's one thing. The other um, Another strategy has been um, mass procurement. So, for instance, if there's a developer who's building a build, you know, building housing in five different cities, and there's an architect or designer who's specifying the materials in those cities, and we go to we meaning, I guess because we sometimes work with these architects and designers, um, but if they specify a particular flooring material, for instance in each of those five buildings over a thousand units rather than maybe a hundred units, then the price differential goes way down. And then you can, you know, work it out with the manufacturer who will, who will lower the cost 
And so then it becomes much more cost competitive. So there's different kinds of strategies that are used in order to, to achieve the use of healthier materials in affordable housing. And that's, it's, it's not unachievable. In fact, it's beginning to happen. If I spoke to a manufacturer today, actually, who does create a healthier flooring, and he is very eager to get into the affordable housing market, um, not only if, you know because it will feel good and because he believes in it as a mission, but because it's a big market. You know, there's a huge, huge amounts of housing that need to be built to match the population growth, the exponential population growth that we are going to um, experience in the next 10, 20, and 30 years. I mean, massive amounts of building have to be built. And so it's, it's a large, you know, housing and especially affordable housing is a very, very big market. When you look, say, 10 years down the line from where you're at today and considering where we've got to, what has been done and what has yet to be done, are you optimistic for the future? Like what do you see as being the, the largest hurdles to be overcome? Do you have an, an overall sense of things going in the right direction, at least within your, your local or regional market there in the US? Hmm. That's a funny question, isn't it? We're, we're suffering through such hard times right now. You know, we are all, um, I don't know, our workplace closed again today, like mm. we did in 2020. And you know, there's so many hardship. There's so much hardship. Really, and you know, we think about the climate crisis and the challenge, the challenges that we need to overcome in order to slow the the temperature rise. And so, there's so much to say that we shouldn't be optimistic, but um, but I can't afford not to be optimistic. I'm a, I'm optimist. I'm an optimist. Otherwise, I think I couldn't do this work. I, <laughs> I am an optimist, and I do believe that we can make the shift. And I think, like you're saying, you know, more people who understand, who've taken the course or who understand the issues, um, are inspired to make change. They are not um, discouraged. I, I see the opposite. I see more and more people being inspired to make change and taking on the challenge of what that means. And uh, again, this, this conversation I had earlier today with a manufacturer who also who shares the optimism, ma- making a floor out of plants, basically, making the floor out of linoleum, as, out of um, flaxseed oil out of linseed oil uh, and saying, you know what, this change can happen. This change can happen. And um, because of manufacturers like that, who are, who are, you know, really rigorous about what kinds of ingredients they're putting into their flooring materials and what kind of ingredients they will absolutely never include because they believe in environmental health. They believe in people's health. And ultimately, they believe in, you know, the the global health of all citizens. I, you know, I, so I think that's a poster child for a manufacturer. Um, and and then we have many many designers and architects who are thinking along the same line. So I do believe we can change. I, I do. Um, but you know, it's a scramble every day for us to make more people aware that they can make these changes, and then they can make more compassionate, knowledgeable, helpful choices so that we can reduce emissions, that we can make healthier housing, that we can have less impact on the water and soil and on the waste production and, um, you know, work together. Like you said earlier, to, to understand the symbiosis between people and 
nature and our atmosphere and start making choices that that re- make you know put that in more re- higher regard so um i am optimistic i think there's also been more and more economic arguments for the same which i think you know political and economic arguments often drive change um and so i think there's becoming more and more legislation also but we really as designers and architects can make these changes that can make have mass mass impact in the in the most positive way i like it i think we should end on on an inspirational high note <laughs> thank you so much it's been really really insightful thank you for your time we will link to the course in the show notes um how do you typically recommend people to engage website obviously your main yeah. uh, way in do you do linkedin instagram what what are your channels all of them yeah healthymaterialslab.org um is our website and you can on the learning hub you can find the courses where you can register um the registration is through the new school which is where parsons school of design is housed and where healthy materials lab is housed we're also on linkedin and on instagram and on facebook um our handle is at healthy materials lab um and so you can find us at all those places actually if you can you can even just google healthy materials lab and it will come up and we have all kinds of resources um for you to to dabble into. So um yeah, I hope I hope more folks join us there. Um come to our website, you'll find in addition to our courses, you'll find um examples of healthier materials that you can specify. You can find tools and resources that will help you get there faster and ultimately uh, a four course program which will give you all this knowledge that um Mattis is mentioning after having taken the course. So um, actually registration is open now through the end of January um, for the course, and then it will close and not open again until the summer. So if you're listening, I encourage you to to register now for the for the course at healthymaterialslab.org. Very cool. Brilliant. Well, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Matt. <laughs>